Good morning. I guess you can figure out I, uh, my, my Florida license came through and, and I'm uh, down here in Florida now. And, but I am with you in spirit and digitally. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer and then I'll make a few announcements. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and we thank you for uh, the way you have designed your kingdom to run. We ask that your spirit will join us today, draw us ever closer to you and make us more effective at witnessing your true kingdom in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So yes, my Florida license came through on Tuesday and I drove down here on Tuesday night and began my responsibilities to become the new medical director here at Honey Lake Clinic in um, about 45 minutes outside Tallahassee, Florida. If you are interested in knowing more about it, just type Honey Lake Clinic into any search engine and it'll pop up and you can take a tour of the facility and so forth. We're doing lesson number eight in our quarterly Ephesians and the title is Christ-Shaped Lives and Spirit-Inspired Speech. And the lesson starts by telling a story of a man named Jose who was living homeless and unwashed, disheveled. And some uh, man gave him a complete makeover, haircut, shave, bath, new clothes. And how after this makeover, he didn't even look like the same person anymore. And went on to say how this transformed his life and gave him a new opportunity and his life became better after that. And then the lesson draws this comparison after that story in the, in the second paragraph. It says, in Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, Paul argues that believers have experienced a complete transformation. They have taken off their old selves and have embraced their new identity, somewhat like Jose's change, though this is no mere external transformation. It includes being renewed in the spirit of your minds, bringing into the life true righteousness and holiness. This is the ultimate makeover. And I want to tell you, I'm so happy to see that the lesson is teaching salvation is a complete transformation of the person being renewed in heart and mind. Uh, this is exactly right. Being healed, regenerated, recreated. Salvation is not a legal adjustment while we're uh, declaring we're righteous while we remain unrighteous. It's actually recreative. And can you uh, think of other places in the Bible that use the metaphor of changing of clothing for salvation? I think you know. And so in Monday's lesson, in the second paragraph, it says, Paul tells us that the adoption of a Christ-shaped life requires three processes which he expresses through clothing imagery. To put off or turn away from the old self, to experience inner renewal, and to put on the new God-like pattern life of life. Paul's metaphor reflects the use of clothing in the Old Testament as a symbol for both sinfulness and salvation. And it lists several of the texts there. And so let's just look at those real quick. Psalms 73, 6, therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. And I, I know we're all familiar with Zechariah 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. I have put rich garments on you. In Isaiah 61, 10, I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And I, I want to add these texts, Isaiah 64, 6. All, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And Matthew 22, 11 to 12. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? 
the man was speechless. And Revelation 4.4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. So I, I think that we make a pretty good case that the Bible makes the case or the use of the metaphor of clothing, dirty, filthy, torn clothing representing our sinfulness and fine, clean, white robes representing the righteousness of Christ. We're all familiar with this, yes? And so the lesson is pointing out that Paul's calling for believers to exchange their old sinful clothes or lives for new clean clothes or holy, pure, righteous lives. The question, how does one do that? Does Jesus take off our old sinful selves for us? No. Can Jesus take off our old sinful selves for us? Or is letting go of our old ways, our old preferences, desires, and priorities, is that our choice to make? Yes. Yes. Do we have a choice to surrender all, to let go of self, to stop trying to make ourselves look good, to be honest with God and ourselves? In other words, to disrobe, to become open and truthful about our actual selves and our condition. Do we have to say to God and to ourselves, I admit that I am a sinner and I am completely infected with fear and selfishness, that on my own, all I do is corrupt and impure. I don't want to be sick of heart and mind, so I surrender my old fear-based survival drive self to Jesus. Do we have to do that? That's ours to do, isn't it? Yeah. But even if we surrender like that to Jesus, take off the old self, can we prepare, sew, in the metaphor of garments, create the new clothing for ourselves? Meaning, can we create by our good works a new righteous character? No. no. So in the wedding parable, why was the man who, was showed, who showed up without any wedding garments called out? for not wearing any wedding garments or clothing? Was he being called out because he didn't buy the wedding garments? Was he being called out because he didn't make the wedding garments? Yeah. Why was he being called out? He didn't wear it. Well, he didn't choose to take off. Right, so in that setting, in that culture, uh, the groom would actually set, send a set of wedding clothes to all the invite, people who are invited free of charge. And so the clothes had been sent, and he had chose to come without wearing the clothes. And so we, and there's a metaphor. There's a lesson. Christ provides us the righteousness, but it's our choice whether we partake of it, apply it, wear it or not. And our lesson this week focusing on Ephesians 4, 17 to 32 uh, let's read these because the question is, who decides, whose choice, who is it to act to take off the old self and put on the new self? And so let's read out of the NIV version of Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by the deceit, its deceitful desires. You were made new in the attitude of your mind to put on the new self, created by God in true righteousness and holiness, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down 
while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That is, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as Christ God forgave you. So in these verses, who is the one that is being instructed to act, to do? Is this instruction saying, please surrender and passively wait for God to change you? No, not put on the new. No, to, to, yeah, we have we have choices. To, this is not a passive process. Are we to passively surrender our mouth and words to God so that we become an organic, mobile speaker platform that God talks through? No, no. No, we're not be puppets. So is the instruction that we are to have God choose for us what emotions we have and how we deal with them or what we choose? Exactly. And so we're the ones who decide in any given circumstances whether we're going to respond with kindness or or anger, whether we forgive or we resent. This is what what Paul's saying. So consider the Bible, um, these Bible passages then. And so this, this is how we undress and how we dress with new qualities of character by the choices we're making. So in Revelation 19, 7 to 8, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and, and, and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Wow, did you ever notice that? Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. So the linen was given her. She didn't make the clothing, but somehow she dressed herself with it. Does this mean that we, through our choices, our good works, our good deeds, save ourselves? No. 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 Well, that wasn't a very resounding answer. (laughs) No. No. Think back of the metaphor of the old and new clothing. Can Jesus choose for you to surrender your fear, hate, resentment, anger, bitterness, malice, jealousy, envy, desire for revenge, sense of injustice, outrage at life is not fair, desire to punish others, unforgiveness, hatred, and selfishness? Can Jesus choose for you to surrender all that? No. Can Jesus choose uh, for you to give your heart to him? No. No, so, so, and Jesus cannot make the choice for you to forgive those who've wronged you. So when you are mistreated, who chooses your response? You or Jesus? For you. The Holy Spirit working. The Holy Spirit will give you the option by giving you an impression, giving you a desire, giving you a conviction, but then does the Holy Spirit take away your freedom and you become a pawn that they pull the levers inside your brain to make it happen in a certain way. No. no. Let him work. So is Jesus the one who decides whether you lie or whether you tell the truth? No. 
whether you spread tales and gossip or whether you protect rep- reputations. Oh. Whether you cheat or whether you're honest. Who's making these choices? You. Whether you steal or get a job, as Paul pointed out. Who makes that choice? We do. Then is our salvation up to us? Are we saving ourselves? No, we're not no, saving ourselves. No. Yes. We can't. <laughs> do you see this is a classic tension between grace and works? Can a person who refuses to make these choices be saved? No. So you could say it this way. Can a person who refuses to put on the righteous robes of Christ be saved? No. 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 Can a person who refuses to take off the old... And tries to cover the old with the righteous robe. So they leave on the malice, the hatred, the bitterness. And they try to legally quit the robe and say, that's not really me. It's, it's Jesus' robe that's covering all my filthiness. Uh, it, 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 you've never heard anything like that before. Uh, can, can they be saved by doing that? Or do they have to actually take off the old in order to put on the new? So, so this idea of, of the faith, the grace, the works, it, it all goes back to what law lends. If we understand God's law as human Roman, Romanization of the, of the gospel with imposed rules that require legal enforcement, imposed punishment, always leads to some form of legalistic religion where the sinner is required after, being, after accepting the legal payment to be legally pardoned and declared to be legally righteous, then they have to legally behave from that point forward or they get more legal trouble. <laughs> or... As others teach, since we can never really live perfectly and uh, all of our sins, past, present, and future for all time were put on Christ and already punished in Christ, then I really doesn't matter how I live because I'm already legally saved in all ways anyway, so I can just live any way I want. Or they believe that it is through the legal application in real time of every sin we remember to uh, confess and repent of that the legal application of the blood is made to our account in heaven. And so it comes back to our memory accuracy to, to recall and confess all sin. But notice all of these descriptions are a form of legalism. They're not reality. What is reality? How God built life to work. The laws that he built life to operate upon, which are an expression of his character and the design protocols for life. So consider the best metaphor to really get your mind around this is the the laws of health. Consider someone has a terminal condition, whether it's an infectious condition or cancer, something else, uh, and they have no capacity or ability to cure themselves from it. And their symptoms are, 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 they're getting worse. They're getting sicker. They know they're dying Uh, and, and they can't cure it. But also consider they have a loving father who is a medical doctor and a scientist who has sacrificed their resources and has developed a remedy that will absolutely and consistently perfectly cure them. If the father offers them the remedy free of charge that the father developed totally on his own, does the sick dying person still have to take the remedy to benefit from it? And what if the remedy also requires, in addition to taking the remedy, that they also, in order to have the remedy work, need to stop their coping behaviors that they learned to deal with the various terminal conditions. Say they had a terminal condition of cancer and it was causing a lot of pain and they didn't have a cure and they learned to cope by drinking heavy amounts of alcohol or smoking marijuana. But now in order for the cure to work, they have to stop these toxins that are interfering with their immune system in order for the cure to work. Do do they have to give up that old coping strategy in order to benefit from the free remedy? Yes. Yes. 
And who would decide whether a person like that takes the remedy and stops the old coping strategy? Is it, is it the sick, dying person or the one who gives the free remedy? And so if the person does choose to take the remedy and stop the old coping strategies, are they saving themselves? No. <laughs> Did they create the remedy? No, it's freely given, 100% developed by another, but they still have to pay. This is the plan of salvation. This is what's this, the balance of faith and works. Our works never create, add to, or improve upon the remedy that Jesus procured for us free, uh, freely and completely by himself. Yet, we cannot benefit from what Jesus has done for us if we refuse to partake of what he's done for us. Uh, everything necessary for salvation was provided by Jesus, and now he offers it to us free, yet still our choice to partake or not. And so one of the founders of the Adventist Church uh, wrote beautifully in the book Christ Object Lessons, page 311, this metaphor of clothing. The robe woven in the loom of heaven has not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Everything that we of ourselves can do is defiled by sin. But the Son of God was manifest to take away our sins. Notice, not to take away our punishment, take away the condition, the sickness. And in him is no sin. Sin is defined to be the transgression of the law. What law? What law? What, no, I'm gonna, what law? Imposed rules, legal, or God's design protocols for life? Remember, whatever is not of faith is sin, according to Romans 14.23. It's a breach of trust. It's a breakdown of love. But Christ was obedient in every requirement of the law. He said of, of himself, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. When on earth, he said to his disciples, I have kept my father's commandments. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. This is it. Christ did what we couldn't do, healed the, cured the condition, and then offers that to us, and we partake, and we get new desires and new motives. And so when you find yourself in that situation, you will have the option, do I bless or do I curse? Do I resent or do I forgive? And the reason you have that option is because the Holy Spirit is coming with the nature, character, attributes, desires, motives that Christ restored into humanity and offers you that option to partake of it and apply it to your life in real time. She describes the same thing in the book, uh, Desire of Ages, uh, page 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. Pause. Why does the law require this? For the same reason the law of respiration requires that we breathe. It is the way life is designed to function, and if you decide to transgress the law of respiration and put a plastic bag over your head, God does not use power to kill you, but the wages of transgressing the law is death. 
And this is why the right, uh, law requires righteousness, because this is how life is constructed to operate. And if you refuse the restoration to righteousness, you're saying, I choose to separate from life. So this man has not to give. Man cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, not through an atonement, appeasement, expiation, payment, legal adjustment, through God's grace and forbearance. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character. That's healing, that's regeneration, that's recreation. A goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. Not the very righteous law is applied in a legal registry and a document in heaven while they remain unrighteous. That's, that's, that's fraud. No, in the believer, we become the righteousness of God, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God can be just, it's the right thing to do, and the justifier, setting those right that, that, that trust and believe in Jesus. That's the right thing to do, save and heal. This is reality. It's the plan of salvation in which Jesus took upon himself the responsibility of destroying the death-causing principle of fear and selfishness and restoring in the human species God's living law, his design protocols, the principles of other-centeredness and thereby restoring the species human to unity with God in his own humanity that he purified and developed a righteous human character in. Thus, he became the second Adam, the second head of humanity, the connecting link. And this is what it says in Hebrews 5, 8, 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Many people misunderstand Bible perfection. They think, well, he was always perfect. He was always sinless. But Bible perfection is about growing in maturity as a, as a sentient and sapient being who has settled into the methods, principles, and protocols of God that you cannot be shaken out of them no matter what you do. Adam and Eve were, were created sinless, but they had not been made perfect they chose to make themselves imperfect and sinful. And Christ took up humanity and carried humanity to perfection by solidifying in his human nature the principles, methods of God. I, uh, it made me think of what the Bible says about Laodicea, which is we often refer to us being the church of Laodicea, uh, neither hot nor cold. For you say, I'm rich, have acquired wealth, don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, blind, poor, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me, this is my question, buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So I'm asking about the buying. Also, this was the ten virgins, five of which were told to go buy some oil. So I'm just, uh, you know, we're, we're told it gives it free, but then this says bye. So I love you, Linda. You, you are all, Linda is always on point, always on point. And, uh, and that's, that, that is coming up in about four paragraphs in my notes. So, so I'm going to get there and I'm going to answer that question. But uh, because that's an important question and you're exactly right for raising it. So thank you. Uh, when we surrender to Jesus in faith, we take off the old self. 
and receives a new self, a new identity, new motives, new desires, mind, character of Christ, which is the robe of his righteousness. Then in our daily walk through life, we are faced with choices. Do we choose the new desires to love God and others, to trust Jesus, to put him at the center of our hearts and motives, to seek to glorify him because we love him and, and what, want to advance his cause? Do we give him thanks or do we continue to brace the practices that have been long held from fear and self-centeredness? When we have bills due, do we fulfill our duties to the best of our ability and we're honest and then trust Jesus with the future and how things turn out, like Joseph did when he was sold into to slavery. He stayed faithful and loyal and maintained honesty and trusted, trusted uh, Jesus. Or do we distrust, allow fear to control our choices and choose to steal, embezzle, or, or cheat in order to pay our way? When someone says all manner of evil against us falsely, we choose to put on the robe of Christ's righteousness and bless them and pray for those who persecute us. Or do we continue to wear the filthy rags of this world and lash back with hate and anger and name calling and retaliation, attacking them in some way, even if it's only in our own mind that we do it? If we choose to fall on our knees, hurt, frustrated, angry, because life is not fair, because we have been wronged, then we cry out to Jesus and tell him how much it hurt and tell him of our anger, our frustration, our desire to go punch someone. But we also say, Jesus, this is not who I want to be. I want to love my enemies like you love me. I want to bless those who persecute me, not curse them, but I don't have it in me. Please create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew your right spirit within me. Then this is our choice to make. This is how we take off the old and we put on the new. And so now to, to Linda's uh, uh, text that she brought up, uh, it says, I counsel you, buy for me gold refined in the fire so that you might become rich and white clothes to wear so that you might cover the sh your shameful nakedness. And the question, how do we buy the, right, the white robes if it's given to us free? And this is the way we purchase through the barter system. When you purchase with barter, you have to give something to get something. It's an exchange system. And so we have to take off the old, give it up the old in order to take on and put on the new. And so we barter by exchanging our sin sickness for his holiness, our guilt for his peace, our shame for his purity, our fear for his confidence, our doubt for his surety, our con confusion for his clarity, our selfishness for his love, our dishonesty for his honesty, our terminal condition for his holy condition, and ultimately, we're exchanging our mortal life for his eternal life. Wow. That's what we're doing. Does that answer your question, Linda? Yes, thank you. Wow. Sunday's lesson, uh, third paragraph, says, Paul is not just concerned about specific sins or behaviors exhibited by the Gentiles. He is concerned about the pattern of behavior that they, that they exhibit, a downward trajectory of living in the grip of sin. At the heart of Ephesians 4, 17 to 19 is a portrait of a callous spirituality in the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. This callous spirituality is the source of the darkened understanding highlighted at the beginning of the passage because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of their heart. They have become callous. 
and the depraved sexual practice underlined at its end and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, uh, to practice every kind of impurity. Alienated from God, they don't know how to live. And separated from his saving grace, they continue in a downward spiral of sin and depravity. Again, I want to commend the lesson for focusing our attention not on a specific list of sins, but on the underlying spiritual condition and sickness that leads to the sinful behaviors or acts. What, why is it an error to, or a mistake to focus on a list of specific sins, even if that list is a comprehensive list? Why would that be an error? Okay, trying to work your way by beholding. We focus on the problem. It can be discouraging. These are excellent uh, reasons why not to do it. Uh, it, it. It misses the problem, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Sins are symptoms of the condition. Mm-hmm. When we forget this, when we're not seeing it through design law, when we see it through Romanism of good and bad deeds, then we fall into the trap of legalism, of works-oriented salvation, of legal payments that actually have no regenerating power, forms of godliness with no power. Would, uh, so you think of Bible texts uh, like this, Matthew five twenty-one to 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. That's a bad act. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Is is anger a a, a behavior, an action that you take? No, it's something that's going on in the heart. Or Matthew 5, 27 to 28, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, another bad action, a bad deed, a sin. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is informing us that the things we call sins, the deeds, the actions, are actually manifestations of a heart problem. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. What does man look at? The behaviors, the deeds. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on at the heart. Romans 7, 7, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. And this is in the context of the flow that the law was given so that sin might be recognizable. And the one sin that really brought Paul to conviction was covet. Well, tell me, what what behavior can you do not to covet? This is not behavioral. It's attitudinal. It's pointing the real issue is a sickness of heart. And then, of course, the healing covenant, the new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will declare them to be legally righteous and put blood of payment in their books in heaven uh, and get, give them a legal pronouncement. No. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. The inner workings of our being get reset to be harmonized with God and how his kingdom works. So the behaviors are the symptoms of the disease, not the actual primary problem. It would be like somebody with pneumonia having fever, cough, and chills. Fever, cough, and chills are not the primary problem. And we really don't help people to simply give them Tylenol for fever and cough suppressant for cough and blankets for their chills. We really need to actually address the underlying cause, what's going on with that pneumonia, and treat and get rid of the pneumonia. And when you treat and get rid of the pneumonia, guess what happens to all the symptoms? 
They go away. And when we get new hearts and right spirits, then we stop living and doing all those things. A person who actually has had the law written on the heart and mind where they love their spouse and God more than others don't commit adultery. They don't cheat or abuse their spouse. People just don't do that. Yes. When you're talking about this, when I was born again, one of the first things that I noticed, besides the hunger and thirst for God's word and taking the desire away from me to drink and numb my mind, but one of the other things that I noticed is that I had a lot of anger issues inside of me, and I was noticing as I was in a state of peace that when I was driving down the road, I wasn't quick to have road rage or, you know, just go into this fit of anger that I would easily go into before. But even now, six years later, since I, you know, have been walking with God this whole time, there are times that I will find myself, every once in a while, I'll have that little anger come back up. <laughs> and God started telling me in my spirit, something's going on inside. You either have unforgiveness you haven't dealt with, there's bitterness, there's something in me that I'm hanging on to, and then I'll go to him, give it to him again, and be in that state of peace again. So beautiful for sharing that. What you just described is that your anger you understood to be a symptom of your own heart. It was your emotion, it was your reaction, and you had to realize something's going on with me that, that in these certain circumstances is reacting with anger rather than the worldly approach, it's their fault. They're the ones. If they weren't doing this, then I wouldn't have anger. That's the worldly approach. So you went to, to, to God and asked the Spirit to lead. And that's exactly what the Bible is teaching, that these things we struggle with are, symptom, are, are symptoms to alert us that something's wrong, that we go to Christ for healing. With that in mind, let's look at Matthew 12, 33 to 37 and see what you think about this then, after we just said all that. This is Jesus speaking and he says make a tree good and his fruit will be good make a tree bad and his fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit you brood of vipers how can you who are evil say anything good for out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks the good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him and the evil man brings forth the evil of the evil stored up in him but i tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken for by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned so if the issue is one of the heart, then why is Jesus saying that it's the words that people speak that acquit or condemn them? Is Jesus making it about our behavior then? If they just kept their mouth shut, they would have been saved while they were having resentment and bitterness? <laughs> no. Well, it's because out of the heart. <laughs> the mouth speaks. Right. Mm -hmm. Tim, these acts. Yes. I uh... Are you going to answer my question? <laughs> <laughs> Can we answer the question first, then we'll take a new one? These acts are symptoms of our heart condition. Yeah, and he answered it by saying, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the mouth is just saying what's in the heart. Thank you. So the way we, so the words are a reflection of the condition of the heart. So they're not being judged because they broke a rule and said a bad word. They are being diagnosed as being continually to be terminal, dead in trespasses and sick in heart. And thus in the judgment, when the judge separates the sheep from the goats, he separates them because sheep are sheep and goats are goats. His judgment does not cause a sheep to become a goat or a goat to become a sheep. And thus, it, those who are righteous remain righteous still, and those who are wicked 
remain wicked still. And that's what he's saying. So it's all design law. It's reality based. Okay, Linda, what you got? Well, and one day I was reading this in Genesis 6, 5, before the flood. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved he had made man on earth and his heart was filled with pain. And I think, you know, we think of the men then or the men now as violent. But God here, even before the flood, was taking into account that their thoughts were evil continually. They might not have acted out the thoughts, but they were thinking that. And it caused, and the thing that caused me to just love God more was that what we do and how we react and how we think creates pain in God's heart. And why would it create pain in God's heart? Because it offends him, because it shows that we don't respect him, because he's too holy to actually listen to it and he can't tolerate it. Why does it cause him pain? Because he loves us so much. Yeah. Yeah. So he loves us so much. Okay. Link it together. He loves us so much. Why does his loving us so much cause him pain if we do these things? Because it hurts us. Because doing those things hurts and destroys us. That's why. And just like a parent would, would be grieved in their heart to see their child smoke cigarettes or, or whatever else self-inflicted harm and injury that they do, he hates it or, or grieves because, yes, he loves us and it hurts us. And that's why he hates it. It actually does not diminish God's holiness. It doesn't diminish God's grace. It doesn't diminish God's love. It doesn't diminish God in any way. It diminishes and harms us to do these things. Tuesday's lesson, last paragraph says, Paul then commands, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, which describes a destructive word making its seemingly unstoppable way toward the lips to do its damaging work. Positively, Paul imagines any negative expression not being just stopped, but replaced by a statement that it exhibits three criteria. Is good for building up, fits the occasion, and gives grace to those who hear. If only all our words could be like that. Mm. What would qualify as corrupt words? Would certainly bearing false witness, right? We've got that. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Thou shalt not. Okay, bearing false witness, words intended to deceive, mislead, words intended to tempt others into sin. I think we'd all agree those are all corrupt words, yes? Yes. But what about cursing? Cursing corrupt words? When Peter denied Jesus with cursing, was Peter speaking corrupt words? Yes. Yes. Was it because he used cursing? And if he denied him without cursing, would it have been less corrupt? No. no. Or how about if how about if instead of denying him, when they asked him if you know him, Peter would have said, Yes, you blankety blank losers, I blankety blank know him, and you and what are you blankety blank gonna do about it? <laughs> if Peter would have said that, would it have been uncorrupted words because he was standing up for Jesus? No. Wasn't standing up for Jesus that way. No. Still corrupt. Why, why, why would it still be corrupt? He's standing for Jesus and, he, and he's speaking the truth that he knew him. So he's being honest. Why is it corrupt? He's not speaking in the character of God or of Jesus. 
Okay, I really like what you're saying there. Despite speaking the truth, this anger, hostility, accusation, and cursing against one's enemies reveals sin infection still operating in the heart, that there is fear, selfishness, anger, and hatred towards others, so his heart isn't pure. Isn't that what's revealed in that statement, even though he's speaking factual truths? Yes, I know him. So consider James's words in James 3, 9 through 11. This is out of the remedy. One moment we praise God our Father, and the very next moment we curse the very, very men and women created in his image. Think about it. Out of the same mouth come both praises and curses. My brothers and sisters, this is wrong, and it must stop. Does a spring bring forth fresh water one moment and sewage the next? No. <laughs> That's a good thought. <laughs> but it does make you cringe when you think... A lot of people judge Christians this way, that they may act all good and even say the right words, but they are not exhibiting the character of Christ when they are trying to defend their religion or their beliefs or you know, get on somebody else's case because they're not doing something they should be doing. They're, they're such an unchrist-like character. I see it online all the time. I'm on various chat groups and people will just jump on and just just demonize a person who says their opinion about something that they don't like. And that is diagnostic of people who are pharisaical or legalistic in their religion. They have a legal religion, their heart hasn't been changed, and they have a list of rules that make them feel safe and secure. And anything that falls outside of those rules uh, causes anxiety and insecurity, and we defend against anxiety and insecurity in this world. This is survival drive. It makes us fearful. It makes us insecure. And how do we defend against insecurity? By exertion, exertion of external authority, control, and power. Shout them down, condemn them down, devalue them, uh, uh, silence them in some way. This is what the world does. And, and this is the manifestation that you see the Pharisees in Christ's day. Look at the New Testament. You see the exact dynamic whenever they're dealing with the apostles after Pentecost and with Christ, they do the same type of behavior over and over again. And so it's typically a manifestation of somebody who's insecure in their belief system, and, and something has been presented that challenges them that they can't answer, and, and it makes them uncomfortable, so they become angry and want to, want to shoot it down rather than look inward and find out what the problem is. What about words intended to hurt another person, even if those words are factually true, but the reason they're spoken is to wound, to hurt, to injure, to manipulate, to control for one's ends? Have you ever seen that happen? Oh, my, yes. What about saying things that are not true? We're still talking about corrupt words, corrupt words. What about saying things that are not true in order to get along, to avoid conflict, to keep one's job, uh, to say something that everyone else agrees is true, but you and your conscience do, do not believe it's true? A classic situation from certain places and times in Earth's history might be uh, denying Jesus in order to keep your job. If you did that, would that be corrupt words? How about denying some other aspect of reality in order to keep your job or your enrollment in school, like maybe that there is no male or female? <laughs> would, would, would speaking those things when you don't believe it's true be a form of corrupt words, just to avoid an argument and avoid conflict? Is that, so 
there's a design law at work when we speak. I'm going to read it to you out of Desire of Ages 323 because it's described very nicely. Uh, it says, closely connected with Christ's warnings regarding the sin against the Holy Spirit is the warning against idle and evil words. The words are an indication of what is in the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But the words are more than an indication of character. They have power to react on the character. Men are influenced by their own words. Often under a momentary impulse prompted by Satan, they give utterances or utterance to jealousy or evil surmising, expressing that which they do not really believe, but the expression reacts on the thoughts. They are deceived by their words and come to believe that true which was spoken at Satan's instigation. Having once expressed an opinion or decision, they are often too proud to retract it and try to prove themselves in the right until they come to believe that they are. It is dangerous to utter a word of doubt, dangerous to question and criticize divine light. The habit of careless and irreverent criticism reacts upon the character in fostering irreverence and unbelief. Many a man indulging this habit has gone on unconscious of the danger until he was ready to criticize and reject the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you, does this apply only to spiritual speech? Speaking about spiritual things? Or, or does this, this principle that the words you speak react back on your own mind and will reinforce those thoughts and ideas make it more easy for you to believe it's true and less likely to accept uh, the actual truth, if you keep speaking a falsehood, isn't isn't that, have you not known people who have practiced certain falsehoods in the way they present themselves to the world around them, and, and they are almost completely impervious to actual truth? They become changed by it. This is a reality. What's happening in the world today? People are being pressured by an evil society, a godless society, to speak things that they themselves don't believe is true. To say with your words, there's no such thing as a man or woman, or to use a pronoun to call a man she or her when you don't believe it's a she or a her to go against your own conscience, something that you believe is false. And there's pressure to do that. You might be written up, you might lose your job. And, and this coercive pressure to speak against your conscience is the real evil here. Evil is based on lies and selfishness. Righteousness is based on truth and love. Thus, evil cannot allow honest dialogue, discussion, and cannot leave people free to decide for themselves. Because in a society where people are left free, truth always exposes evil as fraudulent and destructive. Thus, evil will always seek to silence speakers of truth to coerce and pressure and force its way. Whereas the righteous present the truth and love and leave people free to accept it or reject it. But let me point this out, point out one other wisdom from Jesus. Jesus also said, don't cast your pearls before swine lest they turn and rend you asunder. And there were times when Jesus, before various authorities and leaders remained silent. To remain silent is not the same thing as speaking a lie in order to get along. There will be times when wisdom directs us to remain silent rather than to speak truth boldly. There will be other times when we need to speak clearly the truth. We can ask the Holy Spirit in real time, is this a time to speak or a time to remain silent? But I can tell you one thing the Holy Spirit will never do. 
the Holy Spirit will never lead you to bear false witness, to deceive, and to go against the truth. Wednesday's lesson, the lesson points out how Paul repeatedly describes how sinful living, refusing to apply to one's life the methods and principles of God, grieves the Holy Spirit. Then the lesson states the following in the third paragraph. Paul underlines the full divinity of the Spirit as the Holy Spirit of God and highlights the person portraying the Holy Spirit as grieving. Have you heard things going around the circle? This has been going on for at least 10 years or longer. Uh, it keeps coming back and coming back. It seems like it just really won't go away. Have you heard things in the, in the circle uh, that, that work to undermine the triune nature, the Trinity, either God the Son or God the Holy Spirit? suggesting that there's either the son was either a created being or came later or that there is no such thing as the Holy Spirit. There's a reason for this attack. It's a strategy of Satan to stop people from experiencing salvation. Jesus is God, the son, fully and completely with life original in himself, unborrowed, underived from any other source. And let's be very clear, without Jesus becoming human, living a sinless life, dying a selfless substitutionary sacrifice as our Savior, and rising again, no human being can be saved for sin. We, we require the life, death, resurrection of Jesus for salvation. But what Jesus accomplishes, we've already talked in the lesson today, must be partaken of by us for it to benefit us personally. And the Holy Spirit, who is also fully God, is the one who administers into our hearts and minds the benefit of what Jesus has accomplished in our behalf. Without the work of the Holy Spirit in us, Christ's victory would not benefit us personally. Without the Holy Spirit, Christ's victory would still benefit the unfallen angels who saw the truth revealed and had the lies of Satan purged from their mind. Uh, The planet itself was reclaimed and put back under human governance as Jesus became the second Adam. So the plant life and animal life will benefit from Jesus' victory. But human beings require a personal participation in our own hearts and minds to benefit. And that is applied in our hearts and minds via the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does this by first bringing us Uh, A desire for something better, a longing for something uh, beyond this world, a dissatisfaction with the things of this world, a desire to love and to be loved, and a conviction of our sin-sick state, bringing us to the point that we recognize there's something wrong, there's something broken in me, there's something painful, there's something fearful, there's something I can't fix, and then bringing us the truth and the conviction that to the point that we open our hearts and then the Holy Spirit brings us the victory of Christ, pours the love into our hearts and applies these new desires, the new character of Christ that we talked about earlier, where we have a a desire and then the Holy Spirit empowers us with divine power as we make the choice for the righteousness of Christ rather than the old filthy rags of selfishness. We are empowered to fulfill and carry out that choice. So Satan knows that if he can get people to deny the Father, and believe there is no God in evolutionism and humanism and and some other godless philosophy and live their life selfishly, that they won't be saved. If he can deny the Father, they won't be saved. Satan knows if he can get people to deny Jesus and pursue salvation in some other means or mode without Christ, they won't be saved. And Satan knows that if he can get people to deny the Holy Spirit, to grieve the Holy Spirit, to refuse the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, 
they won't be saved. All three attacks are on the plan of salvation. And all these attacks are on the Godhead are under attacking the character of God. So I want you to understand this. If you get into these arguments, none of the, I've, I've looked and I've read deeply into these things. They're all flawed in multiple ways, but understand the most clear one, the one cuts rubber to the road. If you believe that God is love, love does not and cannot exist in a singularity. In a solitary being with no other living entity in association. For love to exist and function, it requires an other, someone to love, to sacrifice, to give self for, in order for it to actually be what the Bible reveals as agape, other-centered, self-sacrificial love. And if we teach that there was a time in eternity past where God was alone as a singularity, then we teach that at that point in time, he was not love. He was something else. That's part of the real goal here. Also, the minimum number for there to be true agape God-like love is three, not two. Two people who are constantly adoring and reinforcing each other's wonderful qualities fall into narcissistic reinforcement. This is you often see with young, immature couples who get married and maybe they have five, six years of marriage and it looks like they're the happiest, healthiest couple. They constantly dote on each other, attend to each other. They have no interest in any other person in the world. They, they do for each other, buy gifts for each other. Constantly, it looks like perfect love. And then the pregnancy comes along, the first child comes along and mother necessarily begins spending time with the infant and child and has less time for the husband and he becomes angry, jealous, feels rejected, hurt, frustrated, and this reveals it was never actually agape love. It was narcissistic reinforcements, two people worshiping each other. And what we see, and this is what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to corrupt our understanding of the character of God, that he is something other than love. Because for by beholding, we become changed. He wants us to believe there's a system of hierarchy with one member of the Godhead having power over and ruling over the other members of the Godhead. That's Satan's form of government. That's Romanism. In the, in the testimony of the, of the scripture, you will find that it is always every member of the Godhead is lifting up every other member of the Godhead. And, and uh, Jesus is constantly seeking to uplift the Father. The spirit comes not to speak on his own, but to speak up uh, and, and advance and promote Jesus. And the father dispenses the spirit. They're all three giving for the benefit of the other. No one is seeking for self. We also have various problems in Jesus' own testimony in John 14, 15 and 17. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the father and he will give you. Now, notice the words of Jesus. Another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, if there was no third person of the Godhead that we call the Holy Spirit, Jesus' words here are quite strange and misleading. If the Holy Spirit is merely only the omnipresence of the Father, as some claim, then Jesus should have said, I will ask the Father and he himself will come to you and be with you forever, not send another counselor. If this Holy Spirit were not a person, but a force, some energy that emanates from God, then Jesus should have said, the world cannot accept it because the world neither sees it nor knows it. 
But Jesus personalizes this with personal pronouns and distinguishes the Holy Spirit as a different entity in being from the Father. Back in the Old Testament, you find this. In Genesis, in the very beginning, it says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Then God said, let us make man in our our likeness. God did not say, I will make man in my image. This is a plurality. This is more than one at work here. But you might say, wait a second, what about Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, is one. Well, notice in the passage, in the English, it it uses the term Lord and the, the term God in the same passage. If you actually replace those with the Hebrew words, it would read, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh is one. That's, how, that's the, two, the references for, for God. Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. What's interesting is that the word Elohim in Hebrew is a plural word. It's not a singularity word. It's a, it's a duality. It's the same word used in let us make man in our image, the, the God, the Elohim, the plurality of God. So if you put that in English, it would say something like the one Lord, Yahweh, the one, Yahweh, is more than one, Elohim, yet he is one. The one is more than one, yet is one. Yahweh, our Elohim plurality, is still one. That's what it's trying to say. In the Hebrew word, in the Hebrew, there are two words for one, Yahid and Ichad. The first indicates the oneness of a single unit, one individual. That's yakid. The second is the compound unity when you have more than one, two, three, or four that are one. That team is one. The church is one. We want you to be one body of believers. That is echad, ikad. And when it, when it refers to uh, the plural name of God, Elohim, indicating the oneness of God is one in this text in, in um Deuteronomy 6, 4, so it says, Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. That word one, what do you think? Singularity or plural? It's the plural form of one. Our God is more than one and is a plurality of one. That's what the actual text says. You can find other texts in the Old Testament that show all three members of the Godhead. Isaiah 48, 16, and 17. And now the sovereign Lord, which is the Father, has sent me, which is the Son, with his spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Or Isaiah 42, 1. Here is my, the Father, servant, the Son, whom I, the Father, uphold by my, the Father's, uh, by my chosen one, the Son, in whom I, the Father, delight. I, the Father, will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, on him, and he, the Son, will bring justice to the nations. And then if you want one of the founders of the Adventist church, this is Desire of Ages 671. In describing to his disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sought to inspire them with the joy and hope that inspired his own heart. He rejoiced because of the abundant help he had provided for his church. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his father for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent. And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been to no avail. 
The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to its satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but with the fullness of the divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's redeemer. It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon the church. Can you see the vital role of the spirit in our salvation and why Satan wants to devalue and eliminate the, the Holy Spirit from our belief systems? One other quote, and we'll call it quits. This is Evangelism 615. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live a new life in Christ. So I, I, I have this stuff come around from around the circle. I get emails from around the world. Every so many months, this, these errors about either Christ not being a full, full divine being or the Holy Spirit not being anything but the Father's presence come around over and over again. Understand them for what they are. They're an attack on the plan of salvation and an attack on God's character. Um, so don't, don't buy into them. Gracious Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the truth as you revealed it and the evidence you've provided. May we continue to be your effective agents presenting your kingdom in the most effective way that you may come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.